When power changed hands in the ancient world, it could usually be a pretty testy, if not bloody, affair. Sometimes even if the, the king's seat was passed down from father to son or from uncle to nephew or somehow along the family lines, it could still be something that caused turmoil and division and even violence in the life of a kingdom. But if you were taking the throne from somebody who wasn't in your family, then that could be incredibly problematic. Because there could be someone in that line, in that lineage, who could stand up and say, well, no, I'm the rightful king. I'm the one who deserves the throne and could constantly be contesting you. When David rose into power, he didn't take over from his father. He took over from King Saul. And King Saul had an animosity towards David because he knew that David was the anointed king. He knew that he had failed at his work. And so through the remainder of Saul's life, he was trying to take David out. He was trying to get rid of David so that there was no one who could approach his throne. But then after years, Saul dies and David is made king over all of Israel. And it would have made sense for David to hunt down all of Saul's remaining family members and put them to death or at least exile them from the nation so there was no threat. But instead, David did something different. Because David had such a deep affection and friendship for Saul's son, Jonathan, who at this time had already died as well, that he wanted to show kindness to his family. And so he calls his advisors and he says, who's, who's left out of the house of Saul? What descendants of Saul are still around because I want to show them kindness? And his advisors told him, well, there's one. There's Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. But he's just this guy, and he's, he's crippled. He can't walk, and so I don't know what you want with him. But David says, bring him to me. Bring him into my house. And David takes this crippled man who is a descendant of his enemy, and he welcomes him to his table to eat dinner with him like family. But he doesn't just eat dinner with him once, but David says that as long as Mephibosheth is alive, that he's going to be part of David's house, that he's going to be part of David's family, and he welcomes him to his table every time that he eats. And so while he could have shown animosity, while he could have shown anger, while he should have shown violence, David showed kindness, even to someone who should have been his enemy. One of the greatest compliments one of the greatest affirmations that we can be given as Christians and as children of God is that someone would say that we are kind. When Tim Keller defines kindness, he says the definition is practical kindness with vulnerability out of a deep inner security. The opposite of kindness is envy that's unable to rejoice at others' joy, and the counterfeit of kindness is manipulative good deeds. It's the right hand knowing what the left hand is doing. Self-congratulation and self-righteousness. Kindness is simply the outward manifestation of everything that we've talked about so far as we've been looking through the fruit of the Spirit. Kindness is the outward manifestation of the love and the joy and the peace and the patience that God gives us through the freedom that we have in Christ. It's putting those things to work in our lives. And because of the work that Jesus did in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection to set us free by the power of the gospel, we are now free to and commanded to be people who are known 
for our kindness. And so we're going to look at that in Luke chapter 6 today, but I also want to read, as we have every week, the passage in Galatians that lays the foundation for this. So first, from Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And now Luke 6, verse 27 through 36. The words of Christ, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons or children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we are thankful for your word. And we're thankful that through your word, we are reminded of your kindness, that you are good to the ungrateful and the evil, that you are merciful in our time of need. And so just as we have with every passing fruit of the spirit that we've discussed, God, we ask that this kindness that you've showed us would mark our lives as well. That we would be people known for our kindness and the way that we love one another, but also the way that we serve one another and we serve those around us. And as we look at a very difficult passage when it comes to showing kindness, when your son taught us to love our enemies and to do good for those who would hurt us, God, help us to have the trust and the humility to be able to give without expecting anything in return to love even when we're not loved, to be kind even when we're treated with harshness. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to look this morning at three requirements for kindness. And the first one is simply this. Kindness requires compassion. Kindness requires compassion. In Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 34, Jesus and his disciples are really tired. And they're looking for just a little bit of refuge. And so they're going off to a place where they don't expect to see anybody so they can rest and they can recuperate. But as their boat is getting closer and closer to shore, they notice something. They notice that there are people waiting for them. Thousands of people who had heard that Jesus is coming to this area. And they were gathered around to hear Jesus teach, to be healed, and to just experience what it was like to be in the presence of Jesus. And the disciples saw this, and they were a little fatigued by it. 
Because again, they were tired and they wanted to rest. And so this was a little bit of an inconvenience for the disciples. But when Jesus saw them, he saw these people differently. It says that Jesus had compassion on them because he saw them as people who were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he comes out of the boat and he teaches and he spends time with them and he's ministering to these people. And finally it gets time where the disciples come to him and they say, listen, we've been here a really long time. And these people are starting to get hungry. Let's just send them home so they can go and eat. But then Jesus says, no, we'll feed them too. And he takes some fish and he takes some bread and he blesses it. And he feeds the thousands of people himself. Because Jesus looked at them and he had compassion on them. And his compassion drove them to kindness. Another story that I've told before comes out of Philip Yancey's book, Vanishing Grace which really deals with this idea of Christian kindness in a hostile world incredibly well. But Philip Yancey tells a story about two men, about Christopher Hitchens and about Francis Collins. And if you don't know who these two men are, they stand on very polar sides of an ideology. Christopher Hitchens, who was once the editor for Vanity Fair magazine, was one of the figureheads of this movement known as New Atheism. It was a group of, of vocal atheists who would speak out and were very evangelistic against religion, against faith systems, and in favor of no theism at all. On the other side, you had Francis Collins, who was one of the leading physicians in our country, who was the head of the National Institute of Health for a long time, who was incredibly influential in everything that we understand about DNA and the human genome And he was also a believer in Christ, is also a believer in Christ. And so because they stand on these two opposite ends and they're men with great education and wrote books and all these kind of things, they were often pitted against each other. In fact, sometimes they would debate one another in universities and for programs and things like that. You can find some of their debates on the internet. And so from the outward viewpoint, these two people seem to be at odds with one another, almost enemies with one another. And then a few years ago, it comes out that Christopher Hitchens has cancer, and his cancer is terminal. And in some of his writings, Mr. Hitchens talked about the response that he had from the the Christian community, and it wasn't flattering. He would receive letters and emails of people celebrating in his sickness, celebrating in his oncoming death, and even writing just horrible things, asking him if he was ready for the temperature in hell, things like that that seem horrible and awful and certainly don't reflect the nature of Christ. But then came Dr. Collins. Dr. Collins began reaching out to Christopher Hitchens. He began spending time with him talking about experimental and progressive procedures that they could use to either try to eradicate the cancer or at least prolong his life or give him a better life as long as he was living. He would sit with the family of Christopher Hitchens and he would, he would love them and minister and take things to him to the point where it made such an impact on his life that in some of his last writings, Christopher Hitchens used some of that time to praise Dr. Collins, calling him one of the finest physicians in the country and also one of the finest Christians in our country because Francis Collins had compassion for Christopher Hitchens, a man who would seem like he should be his enemy or at least that they shouldn't be in the same circles, that they shouldn't have the same conversations. And yet he showed him that kindness because of his compassion and because of the love that Christ had shown for Francis Collins. He knew he had no alternative but to show that same love and that same kindness for Christopher Hitchens. In verse 27, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. We could have looked at several places to discuss kindness. The idea of kindness and the practice of kindness is all over Scripture. And one of the things that's great about the way that we're going through Galatians 5 is that we're dealing with these fruit of the Spirit individually so we can go wherever we want to talk about love or wherever we want to talk about peace and joy and patience and goodness and all of these things. And so why here? Why should we go to Luke chapter 6 to learn about kindness when Jesus talks about loving our enemies and doing good for those who hate us? I think it has a lot to do with the same reason why you practice for team sports. Tom Thibodeau is an NBA coach, and he's got a reputation as being really hard on his players. And you can hear some of his players from time to time saying that the practices that they run are more grueling and more physically exhausting than the games that they play in. And if you played a team sport, then maybe you know this too. Maybe you had a coach who ran you to death. If you were playing basketball, you just ran suicides all through practice and maybe never touched a basketball thinking, why in the world are we doing this? But the mentality is that if we prepare for the worst, then we're able to play our best. And in the same way here, if we look at kindness from the perspective that Jesus is telling us to here when it calls us to love our enemies and to do good for those who do harm against us, if we can learn to be kind to our enemies, then we can learn to be kind. If we can learn to be kind to the people who are going to be the most difficult to be kind to, the people who are going to give us the least in return, the people that don't deserve our kindness, if we're able to learn how to love them and to be kind to them the way that Jesus tells us to, then it's going to be much easier for us to be kind to those who aren't our enemies. And so we prepare for the worst to do our best. And to do that, it starts with love. It always starts with love. The fruit of the Spirit, as we've discussed, start with love. That love is the catalyst for everything that we do. That it's love that saves us. That it's love that keeps us saved. That love is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. And so out of that love, everything else is born. And so we can't be kind if we're not loving. We might be able to be nice. We might be able to be helpful or do good things. But we can't truly be kind if it's not something that's born out of the love and the compassion that comes from knowing Christ and loving others as Christ loves us. These first couple verses that we looked at here teach us to see the world through the eyes of God. To not see our enemies as someone to be hated, but as someone to be loved. To not see the people that hate us as someone to do harm against and hate them in return, but to do good for them. It helps us to see people the way that God sees people as sheep without a shepherd, as people in need of the grace and mercy of God. But that requires preparation. We don't just wake up one morning and find ourselves naturally good at being kind to our enemies. That's a very unnatural part of our lives, and so we have to prepare ourselves to do that through prayer and through reading Scripture and through being around people who are kind. We need to prepare to be kind. We need to prepare to love our enemies and to love the strangers and the neighbors that God puts into our lives. And so I'll ask you the same question that I had to ask for myself. And maybe your answer is better than the answer that I gave when I was prepping for my sermon. But how often do you prepare to be kind? How often do I prepare to be kind? How often do I wake up in the morning asking God to ready me to love my enemies and to love my neighbor as myself and to do good works and to be kind to the people around us? 
We have this romanticized notion in our, in our culture, in our country, about random acts of kindness. And how nice it is just to go out and randomly find something and just do something just because. But in the life of a Christian, there should be no such thing as a random act of kindness. But all of our acts of kindness should be premeditated and born out of love, born out of prayer, and born out of compassion. Maybe you'll find random opportunities to let this compassion and kindness out, but it will never be random because from the moment we wake up, we want to pursue those opportunities to be compassionate, to be loving, and to be kind. So when it comes, we don't see it as something that's random, but we see it as something that's an opportunity given to us by God to use our freedom to express the kindness that he's given us. The fruit of the Spirit are designed to set us apart. That kind of kindness, that kind of premeditated, unmerited kindness is an incredible way to do that. When we can love our enemies and have compassion on those who would never have compassion on us. In verse 32 and 33, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Jesus is reminding us here that we are meant to be different, that we are meant to be set apart. And this kind of prepared, compassionate kindness gives us the opportunity to do exactly that, to look like Christ in everything that we do because Jesus loved us when we were enemies. He was compassionate on us when we were sheep without a shepherd. He showed us kindness beyond measure that was born out of a love that we could never comprehend. And now he's calling us to do the exact same thing. To go out into the world with hearts filled with compassion, filled with love, and hands that put the work of kindness into motion. And so let's be like Christ in the way that we're kind. And to do that, our kindness must be born out of love and compassion. Next, our kindness requires humility. Our kindness requires humility. And the stories that we've talked about this morning, they have a common theme. With David and Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth offered nothing in return for David. He didn't bring any sort of military expertise. He didn't bring any sort of riches. He didn't bring any sort of physical giftedness. In fact, he was going to be more of a burden on David than a benefit. And at absolute worst, he could possibly be a threat to the kingship of David. And yet he welcomed him into his home and loved him anyway. With Jesus and the 5,000 people, Jesus needed rest. He didn't need another opportunity to talk to anyone. He didn't need another opportunity to show off his power and his grace and his mercy. He was going out there looking for rest, and yet all he found was people who needed something from him. He was giving, and they were taking, and there was nothing offered back in return. For Francis Collins and Christopher Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens was a dying man. It didn't do Francis Collins any good to go and to meet with him in private because until I read Philip Yancey's book, I never heard anything about it. I didn't read any articles about it. There wasn't anything spectacular on the news about this Christian man and this atheist man having this relationship at the end of their lives. It was done in silence. And so Francis Collins got nothing in return out of that. And Jesus continues to tell us why those are acts of kindness when he says in verse 34, if you lend to those who ex you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in 
return. Jesus is telling us to be people who give, expecting to get nothing back. And Jesus says that's the kind of thing that sets us apart, that makes us different. Because he says if you love those who love you, then what benefit is that to you? Because everybody does that, even the worst sinners that you can imagine. If you give to people who are good to you, then that doesn't do any good because everybody does that. It's easy to do good to people who do good to you. I think I've mentioned this before, but I guess it was a few months ago I watched a documentary about Adolf Hitler. But it was a different kind of documentary than I'd ever seen about Hitler. Because it took place and focused around his life at this country home that he owned. It was kind of like his weird dictator, Camp David. When he needed a break, he would leave the, the capital and he would go out into the countryside and he would spend time by himself or he'd spend time with friends and family. And they had home movies from this time. And it was incredibly strange because I was used to seeing these images of Adolf Hitler as we see him in history books and World War II documentaries where he's standing behind a big podium and there's the, the Nazi flags behind him and people goose-stepping and marching and all the horrific imagery that we think of when we think of Nazi Germany and all that it stood for. But in these home movies, it was the same guy, but it looked really different because he was putting his arm around somebody and laughing and telling a joke. He was hugging people that were coming into his house. He was eating and drinking and doing all the kind of things that normal people do with all the people around him. And it became very clear to me that he probably loved some people. This man who was responsible for such hatred and such loss and such violence and such death in our world, someone who we see as truly, deeply horrible and evil, probably gave a birthday present to somebody that he cared about. And was probably really nice to the people in his life that were really nice to him. And so Jesus is telling us here, if you're just loving people who love you, that's fine. Hitler can do that. The worst sinners that you know, they can be a part of this. But what calls you out and makes you different and sets you apart is that as a Christian, you have the ability through the transformational power of the gospel to love those who don't love you. And to be good to those who would do you harm. To show a different kind of kindness and a different kind of love to the world around you. But just like all the other fruit of the Spirit, we want those things to be conditional. My love is conditional based on how people love me. And I only want to find joy when my circumstances are going well. And I only want peace when someone's not being violent against me. And I only want to be patient when it's convenient to me. And I only want to be kind when someone else is kind to me. It makes me irrationally angry when I do something kind for someone and it's not returned. And that's on a little bitty level too. I fully expect that when I'm in traffic on 285, if I let someone in, that they should stop their car and get out and come to me personally and shake my hand and weep because of my kindness, because of how good I was to them, and then get in their car and carry on their merry way. And so when I do something really kind for someone, and then they either respond with nothing in return or, as often could be the case, return my kindness with animosity or something negative in return, it gets me real deep. It makes me really angry because I like my fruit of the Spirit to come conditionally. But chances are, if we do this right, if we love our enemies and do good to those who would do us harm, the reality is that our enemies probably won't return that kindness. 
And what can even be more difficult is your friends might not return that kindness. The people that you love might not return that kindness in the exact same way. Kindness requires the kind of humility to know that this isn't about you. It's not about me. It's not about what we get out of our kindness. That we may be giving something away that we never see returned. And that's okay. It's the humility to know that our pride does not supersede our need to give to others. And that means even when it's the people who we like the least. But maybe you're good at that. Maybe you're good at loving your enemies. Maybe you're good at being kind to those who are against you. There's another way that our pride can manifest itself. And I think this might even be more common in the Christian life than the first. Sometimes our pride manifests itself in such a way that when we give to those who are in need, when we give to those who have nothing to offer, when we give to those who might even retaliate us against us with something negative, we can get a different kind of reward that sometimes can be just as satisfying when we receive the praise of people. There's something incredibly alluring about the fact that if we do something nice for somebody and somebody else sees it, when someone says, I saw you do that, I saw how kind you were to that person. I saw you, you go and do that for someone who is in need. I saw all of these things that you do, and you're such a nice person. That feels really good. That makes us feel really special, and that can cause us to find pride even in the midst of something that looks like humility. But Jesus had a remedy for that too. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, When you give to the needy, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Don't let your two hands communicate that you should give so secretively that no one, even including you, is concerned with what's going on because you're doing it out of the kindness of your heart and your love for Christ. And if Jesus had to tell people 2,000 years ago that we have to watch our motives when we give to people and when we're kind to people, then how much more important is it for us to hear that now in a world dominated by social media? Because now you don't have to be kind and hope somebody's around to see it so that you can receive that kind of praise. Now, if somebody's around that happens to have a phone or a camera, or you can do it yourself, you can take a picture of yourself being kind to someone and then share it on a variety of forms of social media and receive instant feedback. You can have people immediately tell you how good and how awesome and how kind you are. And this is a problem, I think, in the life of the church, especially not just us individually, but as a whole. And I know there's been times when I've been guilty of this as well, because churches have a tendency to tweet the left hand what the right hand is doing. That we always are ready to post pictures in any opportunity where it's a mission project or serving somebody in need or doing work in our community, that we can post a picture with the guise of saying, look at the good things our church is doing, with the undercurrent of saying, look at the good things our church is doing. And I know I'm guilty of it. I want people to think that we're awesome because I think you guys are awesome. And I like me pretty well, too. And so I want people to know that we do good things. And sometimes that gets in the way of the fact that we do good things. And the danger of this is it gives us the possibility of turning the recipients of our kindness into the objects of our self-gratification. The people who we should be loving, the people who we should be caring for, the people who we should be offering our selfless kindness to can become objects for us to receive praise and honor and glory and self-gratification. 
And so we have to be very careful to be humble in the way that we give our kindness as well. Because a very wise man once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And that couldn't be more true when it comes to kindness. Because when we are doing these acts of kindness, when we are living out the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, we have to be sure that we are the last person on our minds if we even cross our minds at all. Because first and foremost, our kindness is for the glory of God, to show the world who God is. And then it's for the good of the people that we're offering our kindness to, be it our enemies, the needy in our community, our friends or family, whoever it is that we are loving and compassionate towards and showing our kindness, they are the object of our affections, not ourselves. Without humility, you aren't kind. You're opportunistic. Without humility, we aren't Christ-like, we're philanthropic. And so when it comes to doing this kind of kindness, we can't count the cost and we can't count the reward. We can't ever think about how much it's costing me and how vulnerable I am to put all of this out there and to love my enemies and to do good to those who would cause me harm and to lend to someone who could never pay me back. I can't cost the count or count the cost of that. And on the other side, I can't count the reward that could come with all of these people thinking about how good I am and how awesome I am. That should never cross our minds because our kindness requires humility. Our kindness also requires trust. Sometimes the fruit of the Spirit can leave us hungry. As we looked at Paul's division between the work of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, the work of the flesh on the surface seemed to be much better than us, better for us. Because when I have a need, when I have a want, when I have a desire, if I put those works of the flesh into practice, then I can get that. I can take a hold of those things and immediately quench my thirst and immediately fill my hunger and immediately take care of myself. But when I live out the fruit of the Spirit, that seems to have a whole different end game. The work of the flesh feeds me, but the fruit of the Spirit feeds other people. And sometimes when it feels like we're just putting it all out there over and over and over again, we can feel very empty if we don't think about these things in the proper light. But just as we've seen through every fruit of the Spirit so far, we need to be able to see all of this through an eternal lens. To see things the way that God sees things. And when we do that, our real, pure reward becomes very clear. Because in verse 35, Jesus says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons, or that word can be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus says our reward will be great. In Matthew 6, he says that when you give to the needy, that your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. And that's the kind of reward that we should be pursuing after because God's rewards are so far beyond anything what we could possibly imagine anyone else be able to give us. And this is what your reward looks like. You will be children of God. That's the reward that we receive through this kind of kindness. That we become heirs to a promise that belongs to Christ. That we will become like Christ in everything we do. And it's an eternal promise that will never pass away. Kindness requires a trust in God's promises that allows us to give everything, knowing that one day we'll receive so much more. 
Even if we feel empty and bankrupt so many times in our lives, we have this reminder and this promise that if we live like Christ, if we pursue Christ, if we've been saved by his grace and mercy, then we have a promise that will never pass away, an inheritance that is never going to shade, it's never going to diminish, it's never going to disappear, but it's going to be ours for all of eternity, and it's going to be better than anything we could ever imagine or anything we would ever know. Verse 30 tells us to give to everyone who begs. And from everyone who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And in the English Standard Version Study Bible, the note for that passage of Scripture says that this means that believers must be generous to a fault. That we must be willing to lose it all for the sake of giving to others. And this kind of reckless generosity and kindness is only possible if we value the reward of God and the well-being of others more than what we have. If we trust in God and his provision more than we trust in the stuff that we have and the pride that we hold and the things that give us comfort. If you're in Christ, then you have been set free. And you've been set free to be kind. You've been set free to be generous because you realize and you trust in Jesus that your jar will never run empty. That you believe wholeheartedly that you can never overdraft your inheritance. And so because of that, you can be kind with reckless abandon because you have a God who is exceedingly kind to you and who loves you out of a measureless love and has an eternal hope for you that no one can ever take away. And so even if you lose it all being kind here and now, you will gain so much more for all of eternity with Christ. And so to be kind like this, it requires that we trust in the goodness, in the plan and in the reward of the God who is kind to us first. And then finally, kindness requires good theology. Kindness requires good theology. We've talked in every part of the fruit of the Spirit, and this formula should be fairly familiar to you now because the fruit of the Spirit have the same MO. They have the same building blocks. But the fruit of the Spirit are designed to reflect the character of God. We love because we serve a God who is loving. We're joyful because we serve a God who is eternal. And in the midst of no matter any circumstances that we deal with, he is still good and he is still wonderful and merciful. We can have peace because we know who, a God who will bring peace once and for all one day. We could go on and on and on. But these things reflect the character of God and kindness is no different. Because Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you'll be sons or children of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And then Jesus says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. This could have been a much shorter sermon. I tell you that here at the end, so that if I would have told you at the beginning, you would have thought, man, this is really long. But now you're like, eh, this wasn't bad, but it could have been shorter. It could have been a much shorter sermon. It could have been based on two questions. One, why are we kind? The answer, because God is kind. Second question, how should we be kind? And the answer is, we should be kind as God is kind. You see, just like with every fruit of the Spirit, it's based out of a knowledge of who God is. To love, we have to know the source of love. To be joyful, we have to know the eternally good God who can bring us joy even in the midst of pain and sorrow. To be peace, we have to know the Prince of Peace who withstands all violence and all attacks and who one day will put that to rest. 
to be patient. We have to know the God who holds time and space in his hands and who in the fullness of time brought Christ into the world and at the fullness of time will put all things to rest and make all things right. And we can trust him with all the little details because he holds time in his hand. And in the same way, to be kind, we have to know the God who is kind. When we learn about God, when we study his word, we find, as Jesus says here, that he is kind to the ungrateful and that he is kind to the evil. That's a strong word there. Because we like talking about God's kindness to sinners and God's mercy towards sinners. But man, it's really hard to swallow when we see that we serve a God who is kind to not only the ungrateful, but a God who is kind to the evil. And so in the same way, we should reflect that in our lives. Jesus says that he is merciful, and so we must be merciful as our Father is merciful. And this means a lot more than just we are merciful because God is merciful, but Jesus is telling us that we should be merciful in the same way that God is merciful. We can get really caught up on trying to be good Christians on trying to reflect an idea of what we think Christian morality is or what a Christian should look like. But the reality is the only way to look like a Christian, to reflect what it means to be a Christian, is to look like and to reflect Christ. And to reflect Jesus, we have to know Jesus. To reflect the kindness of God, we have to know intimately the kindness of God that's revealed to us in Scripture, that he reminds us of in prayer, that we can see laid out in the work of the church and in the people around us, and that we're reminded of time and time again when we remember the kindness that he showed us to make us his own. He's the kind of God that is kind to enemies and ingrates. He's kind to the unthankful, the ungrateful, and the evil. And so as we go, we need to remember that kindness of God. We need to remember that it was his kindness that led us to repentance. That it was his kindness that when we were enemies made us children of God. That when we were sheep without a shepherd drove us in to himself and called us his sons and his daughters. And is exceedingly kind to us every single day even when we don't deserve it. And because of that we need to go out and to act like his children. To reflect his name. To reflect his goodness. To reflect his kindness through our kindness. To be merciful and kind as our Father is kind. And so what does that kindness look like? It looks like loving your enemies, doing good to those who hate you, blessing those who curse you, praying for those who abuse you. Loving your enemies and doing good and lending, expecting nothing in return and trusting God with the rest. That we prepare ourselves through compassion and humility to be kind. And that we continue preparing ourselves through a knowledge of who God is and trusting in his plan and his power to be able to give and to love and to be kind with reckless abandon. So how are we preparing to be kind? How are we going to leave this room this morning and go out into a world filled with people that we love and people that we don't love so much? with people that love us and with people that might hate us, how are we going to go out and use our freedom that was given to us by Christ through his death and resurrection to show that kindness? I want to encourage you to take a really practical step this week. If you're taking sermon notes, then you can just use the next page. If not, go home and find a sheet of paper. And I want you to make a list. 
of the people that you know who need your kindness. Maybe they're your friends. Maybe they're your family. Maybe there's somebody at work that you really don't like and grind you to the last possible nerve you could possibly have. Maybe it's somebody who you would consider a true enemy. Somebody who would rather see you fail and fall and die than ever do anything good in turn for you. I want you to make a list, and I'm going to do the same thing, about ways that we can show the kindness of God. Practical, detailed ways. Planning to be kindness. Not looking for random acts, but preparing ourselves to be kind to those in need. And then I want us to check those things off this week. To take that time, to take that motivation, to take the grace and mercy of God, the transformational power of the gospel, and to go out and to put our hands to the plow and show kindness to those who don't deserve it or those who desperately need it. Let's be kind. Let's be merciful as God is merciful and love our enemies, love our neighbors, love strangers, love people that we could never even fathom meeting. Do good for them, pray for them, and bless them. And most importantly, let's be kind to them.